This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, May 12th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. These are challenging times for the Trump administration as the president faces rising tensions with Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia. As trade talks stall, President Trump raises tariffs on China and threatens more. The North Koreans test a second round of ballistic missiles. And the U.S. makes new military deployments to the Persian Gulf, following intelligence reports that Iran is planning possible attacks on American forces in the region. Back at home, Democrats say the country faces a constitutional crisis over the administration's refusal to cooperate with Congress on several investigations, as most Republicans step up the pressure to move on from the Mueller report. But the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee wants to hear more from Donald Trump Jr. on the issue of Russian interference in 2016. We'll talk with the top Republican in the House, Kevin McCarthy, as well as Democrat Senator Michael Bennett, who sits on the Intelligence Committee. Continuing a Face the Nation tradition, we traveled outside of Washington to talk with former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who served eight presidents to get his perspective on all those challenges. Do you think it's a legitimate criticism of the president that he didn't confront Vladimir Putin about what the Mueller report concluded? I think that was a mistake, yes. Former Bush Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson will also join us. And we'll have plenty of analysis. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to cover today and we will begin with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Good to have you here in studio. Well, thanks for having me. First, I wish you a very happy Mother's Day. I know this is your first Mother's Day, but also to my mom and to my mother-in-law and most importantly to my wife, mother uh, of our children. You get points for that. <laughs> uh, well done. Uh, but leader, let's, let's talk about one of the things that we laid out there in the open, which is this decision. Uh, to ask Donald Trump Jr. to come back to answer questions uh, related to previous answers he had given to the Senate Intelligence Committee. You've said it's time to move on. But if Congress hasn't finished its own investigation, how can you say that? But they have, they have finished the investigation. The but, Senate Intelligence Committee hasn't finished its work. But think about why the Senate is doing this. Donald Trump Jr. has spent 27 hours already testifying. They're requesting him back based upon something that Cohn has said when he is in jail for lying to Congress. But Cohn was talking about a meeting he wasn't even at. So that is why I believe we should move on. And if the Senate hasn't you know finished, it's specific to the Trump Tower meeting. That's that is what the they question. that is what they laid out the, the reason why. But more importantly, it's not going to change the outcome of the Mueller report. And no House or Senate is going to have the number of attorneys, the ability to subpoena where they're going, the grand jury, all that. So this is a time that the country wants us to move forward. We want to move forward. We got health care. We got trade. We got a crisis on our border. The Democrats are more interested in subpoenas than solutions. But this, again, is a Republican-led committee that went forward with the subpoena. Bob Mueller never interviewed Donald Trump Jr., but this committee did. If there were For no 27 hours. Sure. And if there were no charges brought, why not just respect the mandate of Congress and come back and answer the questions? You sound like you're saying he's too busy. No, I'm not saying he's too. I'm saying the Mueller. Why does the number of hours matter? The Mueller report, because if you've ever interviewed an individual 27 hours, you get to the point of everything you've asked. The other the part of the Mueller had a chance to ask the questions themselves. Only their staff did. But you had a Mueller report 
that had 40 attorneys, FBI agents, went to different countries, have more power within Congress, the ability for grand jury and others, and they found no evidence. So don't you think it's time to move forward? Don't you think the American public... Now, you're out on the road talking to Democrats who are running for president listening. They're not being asked about this either. We've got a crisis on our southern border. We've got an economy mm -hmm. that's stronger than we've had in 50 years. We have more people working in America than any time in American history. You have sure. more jobs being but offered than people actually looking. power interfered in our democracy. That no, was the you just, purpose of this pro Yeah, pro but you just, had, you just had that answered by the Mueller report. The there was Senate, no collusion and there's no obstruction. But Senator Marco Rubio, who sits on this Intelligence Committee, has said Republicans who are criticizing this are, are fundamentally misunderstanding the intent of the committee investigation, that it is focused on this question of a foreign power interfering. The intent is to move towards legislation that can prevent it from happening again, or at least make it harder. Doesn't that have merit? Look, the, the idea of a foreign entity trying to um, move into our elections is something Republicans have been working on for quite some time. We were the ones that pushed Obama, who d ignored our concerns of what was going forward when he was president. This is something Republicans have stood up for a long time. But the question that the Mueller report has already answered, so why do you prolong that? If you want to look at entities that are trying to get into our elections, yes, that is something we've always worked on. But Donald Trump Jr. has already testified for more than 27 hours. If you want to bring him back in, because something Cohen has said when he is in jail for lying and talking about a meeting he wasn't even in, no, I don't think that's right. But it's not going to change the outcome of what this investigation has already done and the power behind the Mueller investigation. That's the concern that I have. So do you disagree then with some of your fellow Republicans who say they want to investigate the origins of the investigation? No, I think that's very important from the origin of the investigation. So it's not time to move on? No, it's time to move on. Was there obstruction? No. Was there collusion? No. But why did we even get to this point? Why did the dossier get to that point? What were the communications? You've got an IG report coming in. That's going to be very important. But you never want America to have to live through this again. You don't want to have a president on any side of the aisle have to go through what we just went through again. So I think from that instance, that's where Attorney General Barr is looking, and I think that's appropriate. So not all of these investigations are about Mueller. Yes. Uh, you have in the Democratic-led House... Uh, 20 or so investigations underway. Some of them, though, and we can put up on the screen some of the, the scope of these investigations. There are things like security clearances and whether those are being handled properly. These were questions that Republicans had when yeah. they held the majority. So don't you think there are some investigations here with merit? There are some with merit. And if you look at our ranking member, Jim... So you disagree, it's just harassment. No, if you look at um, what Jim Jordan, our ranking member in there, he actually brought in the individual from the White House to talk about it. The, the problem that I have is something a situation like Chairman Nadler is doing. Chairman Nadler just held the Attorney General in contempt because he requested that he breaks the law. And if you will not break the law, I'll vote in contempt. You That's the action. of disclosing grand jury information more publicly. Exactly. And if, if Chairman Nadler was that serious about getting to the bottom, he hasn't even taken the time to go read, which he's approved to read, the 99.9% of any obstruction inside the Mueller report. But he hasn't even gone to read it while trying to hold the attorney general in contempt. He's asking him to break the law. Well, the, as you know, Democrats argue that this is a matter of transparency and going to see it without being made, made public. You know the argument back and but forth But that argument there. doesn't but, hold. But think about that argument. Contempt? He has the right to read it and he won't read it. For the, the reasons that they've given there uh, in terms of being able to share it publicly. But you say it's time to move on. Legislatively, what is actually possible right now? Because we haven't really seen the White House go to Congress and say, put forth a vote on this hardcore proposal on immigration, even on infrastructure, which the president says $2 trillion deal is what he wants to get done. But see, that's not true. The administration has. The administration is sitting here trying to grow an economy that we're already the strongest we've been in 50 years, USMCA. But Speaker Pelosi is withholding a vote on that. That would increase thousands of more jobs, increase our GDP of where we're going. You're talking about the USMCA. Yes, exactly. That has to be voted on in Congress. The power there is with the Speaker when to bring it up. Closing the loopholes on the crisis on the southern border. Think, just last month, 
more than 100,000 illegal crossings happen. These are the only ones that we are able to catch in one month. That is the size of your hometown of Stamford, Connecticut. A little more than about 130 there, but that's We're in gonna, one month. That is a crisis. Even, We're have to loop but it there, even the New York Times writes about this. Everybody knows there's a crisis about the humanitarian except crisis. the Democrats in Congress. Congressman, thank you very much thank you. for coming in studio. We turn now to Colorado Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. He's running for president, and he joins us from the campaign trail in Des Moines, Iowa. Good morning to you. Uh, sir, you sit on the Senate Intelligence Committee. The decision to serve a subpoena to the president's son set off this firestorm among Republicans who were saying the Mueller report is in. Let's just move on. Yeah. If Mueller chose not to prosecute and he had access to the transcripts from Congress's interview with Donald Trump Jr., uh, what more is this? Why is this necessary? Well, first, first of all, Congress's business here is not to... We're not doing a criminal investigation. This is not about prosecuting anybody. This is about understanding how serious, and it was profoundly serious, the Russians' interference in our elections were in 2016, an interference that the President of the United States refuses to acknowledge. And then I would say second, with respect to the Mueller report, this is just in the early days. I know the President and his Attorney General and allies would like to just wish the report away, but the American people are just starting to see this report. The Congress has not yet received an unredacted version of the report. We have not yet seen the underlying documents for the report. And the report is a report that conclusively says that the, the special prosecutor could not clear the president of obstruction of justice. So I think while they, wanna, uh, they do want to wish it away, I think that Congress has an important oversight role uh, to, per, to perform here, including the Senate Intel Intelligence Committee. So it sounds like you're saying Republicans may be overreacting? I think that what you've had is a sequence of events that started with the Attorney General of the United States acting like the President's defense lawyer and summarizing Mueller's document falsely and implying that somehow the document didn't show wrongdoing by the President. And Republicans like Mitch McConnell have taken advantage of, of that uh, false summary, a summary that Mueller has said is false and have said case closed and we haven't the american people haven't even heard bob Mueller testify yet so um, i think that they ought to allow this to take its course uh... well bob Mueller uh, had an issue with context i don't know if he used the word false um, but in terms of the Mueller report it, it did make clear um, as you have said in your personal view that the president committed impeachable offenses that sounds like you're saying you support impeachment. What is the point of that process if it's just going to be dead on arrival in a Republican-controlled Senate? Well, I've said that I don't, I, I'm not ready to say the president should be impeached. I said that he, I think it looks from the report as though he's committed impeachable offenses. I think there is every reason why the investigation in the Congress should continue, and then we should make an assessment of where it leads. You're quite right that as long as... Uh, the Republicans are in charge of the Senate and they are, want to bury their heads in the sand about what's gone on here, that it's unlikely that that process will go through all the way to the end, which is why I think Nancy Pelosi has wanted to say, let's not jump to a conclusion on impeachment yet. Let's let the process go forward and see where it takes us. And by the way, ultimately, I think where it will take us is to replacing Donald Trump in 2020, which is what we need to do. Well, and it's something that you personally would like to see happen there. As, as we mentioned, you are uh, in the field yourself. Uh, you wrote an op-ed recently saying that while you do support a hardline approach to China, you think President Trump has been really bad for farmers. Do you support a third bailout for farmers? I, I, I think it shouldn't be necessary. I think, look, Donald Trump has shown himself to be the most fiscally irresponsible president we have had in generations. Uh, here's a guy who's managed to rack up a $2 trillion deficit at a moment of full employment in the country. It is almost impossible so to do So what would that. you do differently if solution, you are uh, commander-in-chief and leading these talks? Yeah, what, what I would do differently is mobilize the world against China's mercantilist trading policies, which the president is right to point out have been unfair. But putting tariffs on our allies, putting tariffs on even the Chinese that are actually taxes on American producers, American farmers, taxes on the American consumer and taxes on the American worker, 
I think are completely the wrong way of doing this. And I can assure you the Chinese have a longer attention span than Donald Trump has. Um, so I have just spent three, two days with farmers in Iowa. I've spent time with farmers all over my state as well. They, they were facing low commodity prices. They were, in my state, they're facing drought. In Iowa, they're facing flooding. Uh, and, and now on top of that, they're facing the retribution by, uh, by, by our trading partners and our foes. And that's a direct consequence of the president's uh, immigration, or, uh, trade policies. His immigration policies also have been terrible for farmers in my state. People are selling their equipment because they can't hire people to be able to do the work they need to keep their farm or their ranch or their dairy operation uh, in business. And, um, and it's ironic because he, he has such massive support among so many of these folks. But we'll see what happens over time. All right. Senator Bennett, uh, as we said, you are on the campaign trail. We appreciate you joining us today. We'll be back in one minute with an interview with former Defense Secretary Robert Gates. Stay with us. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. It's our seventh year of traveling to Williamsburg, Virginia to sit down with former Secretary of Defense and now Chancellor of William & Mary, Robert Gates, to talk about the news of the day. We asked him whether he thought Russian President Vladimir Putin had paid an adequate price for meddling in the 2016 election. No, I think we have not reacted nearly strongly enough uh, to uh, Putin and to Russia for their blatant interference in 2016. And I think there are ways we can do that. It's not military, but it's uh, perhaps a certain set of sanctions. It's also using some of our own capabilities to go back into Russia and, let's say, inform the Russian people of the magnitude of corruption of Putin. And, uh, and I think we can make a case about that. And I think, I think we can create more problems for him. Uh, in a, we have the, the capabilities to do that. Why don't you think the president has done that? I don't know whether it's his peculiar relationship with Putin, whether he feels like any acknowledgement of Russian involvement in the 2016 election somehow delegitimizes uh, his being elected president. I don't know what the mix of motives are. But the interesting thing is everybody around the president actually has a much more realistic view of the Russians, and that includes uh, up on the Hill. And it's a favorite talking point for the Trump administration to say that, they're, that they've been the toughest on Russia of any administration. And in some respects, that's true. In some respects. <clears throat> and the sanctions. You're a cold so warrior. You, you actually believe that? I, I think in terms of the magnitude of the sanctions that have been put on Russia, they are more significant than have been imposed in the past. Do you think it's a legitimate criticism of the president that he didn't confront Vladimir Putin about what the Mueller report concluded? I think that was a mistake, yes. I think he should have, uh, uh, he should have said, we've had this discussion, the evidence is in, and, and don't ever do this again, or there will be consequences for Russia. I think he, I think he very much should have raised it with him. Republican leadership on Capitol Hill says Mueller report, case closed. Should it be? The piece of the Mueller report about Russian interference is not case closed. And frankly, I think elected officials who depend on honest elections to get elected ought to have, ought to place as a very high priority measures to protect the American electoral system 
against interference by foreigners. We've already kicked off campaign 2020. Will you be supporting President Trump? I have no idea what I'll do uh, in 2020. Um, we'll you see. You consider yourself, though, to be a Republican? I do. I do. But you're not sure if you're going to support the Republican nominee? It's a long time until the election. Do you think, though, when you say you still are a Republican, has the party itself become the party of Trump? I think to a considerable extent it has. And, and I'm, I'm disappointed that more Republicans uh, don't stand up more often for traditional uh, Republican values, uh, whether it's greater fiscal discipline, um, internationalism, uh, trade, and so on. I was rereading your memoir before we sat down to talk. And you said in your memoir, Joe Biden is impossible not to like. Quote, he's a man of integrity, incapable of hiding what he really thinks, and one of those rare people you know you could turn to for help in a personal crisis. Still, I think he's been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. Would he be an effective commander-in-chief? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I stand by that statement. He and I agreed on some key issues in the Obama administration. We disagreed significantly on Afghanistan and some other issues. I think that uh, the vice president had some issues with the military, so how he would get along with the senior military and what that relationship would be, I just, uh, I think it, it would depend on the personalities at the time. He's a peer of yours. He's about a year older. <laughs> Yes. You think he's right for this moment? I think I'm pretty busy and pretty active, but I think I think having a president who is somebody our age uh, or older, in the case of Senator Sanders, uh, is uh, I think it's problematic. I think that um, you don't have the kind of energy uh, that I think is required. Uh, uh, to be president, uh, I think I th I'm not sure you have the intellectual acuity that you might have had in your 60s. Um, so I, I mean, it's just a personal view. For me, the, the thought of taking on those responsibilities at this point in my life would be pretty daunting. The argument being made, though, is he's—you think he's been wrong for 40 years, but he's got 40 years' experience. Um, he has foreign policy experience, and there's this argument about. Uh, American values right now and who we are as a country. Um, do you think, given that, that, that there is a role for him in the conversation right now? Well, I definitely think there's a role for him in the conversation, and I think he will raise some issues that the other candidates uh, for the Democratic nomination need to address. I've had my issues with, with him on foreign policy, but I've hardly heard a word out of any of the other 20 candidates on foreign policy at all. I have no idea what any of them think about any of the issues you and I have been discussing. You think that's a mistake that more of this isn't discussed on the campaign trail? Because the argument is foreign policy doesn't win you the election. It certainly doesn't win you the primaries. But I would think that in the interviews and so on, that's the opportunity for them to say, you know, I actually know something about foreign policy and here's what I think on these issues. So I, I, think, I think it's irresponsible not to give people, the, the electorate more broadly, some idea of where you're coming from. Going back to the question I asked you about uh, Joe Biden being a peer of yours and his age, you raised Senator Sanders' age also as a concern. Is the president's age a worry for you? Well, he's getting up there, too. He's, he's a little younger than we are, but, uh, but not a lot. I think it has to be, you know, it's a question people ought to, ought to address. The other side of the coin is, by the time of his second term, Ronald Reagan was up there also. Mm -hmm. And I think Ronald Reagan was a pretty great president. So, uh, I mean, there are exceptions. But the mental acuity issues that you raised for Joe Biden or for anyone in that age group, you would apply to the president Well, as I well. was talking about myself, not to say <laughs> anything else. Um, but I think, I think it's a question. When you're talking about being the president of the United States, the ability to do the job in every respect 
has always got to be a, a consideration. Our conversation with Secretary Gates will continue in our next half hour. We'll hear his thoughts on China, North Korea and Iran. We'll be right back in a moment. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. the nation, we continue our interview with former Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates. So the world is watching these trade talks between the U.S. and China, and there seems to be this brinksmanship game over tariffs underway. Does China have an advantage over us? Well, the Chinese have an advantage because they have a strategy, and we don't. They have set goals. They have a strategy for achieving those goals. And we really don't have a strategy. We haven't had a strategy in quite a while. You don't think the Trump administration has a broader plan for China? I don't think, basically, that uh, recent U.S. administrations have had a strategy for how to deal with China long term. In Washington, I always like to say that long-term planning is a week from Thursday. (laughs) Washington is so consumed all the time by the issue of the moment that it's very difficult uh, to have to get senior people to set aside the time to think about where do we want to be in five years with this country or that country. That's what the National Security Council and its staff is supposed to do in terms of bringing together uh, all of the elements of the government to figure out where we want to be. But recent administrations, I think, have not been able to do that very well. We've seen their number of hot spots right now uh, attracting attention from the Trump administration, Iran in particular. Uh, the U.S. just sent B-52s, redirected an aircraft carrier to the region. It's supposed to be a warning to Iran that the U.S. will defend itself. But how do you interpret this sort of muscular response? In a way, we're kind of returning uh, to a presence that we had when the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were at their height. The theocracy in Tehran really is hostile to the United States all the way down to the core. And, and so trying to figure out how to deal with these guys and to uh, warn them not to take some uh, rash action that would precipitate a response by the United States, I think, is, a, is an important element. I think the administration is sending that signal. But it isn't just the fact we walked away from the Iranian nuclear deal. This is a more deeply embedded rivalry uh, and, and dislike uh, between these two countries. They would argue they negotiated with the United States, with the world, and the result after that diplomacy was to have the U.S. walk away. What is their incentive now to talk? What the agreement did not address was, with the, was their testing of ballistic missiles of increasing range, and it did not address at all Um, their meddling and interference in the Middle East, their support for Hamas and so on. Now, those are the kinds of things that actually are creating a lot of uh, turbulence in the Middle East. And and so getting a handle on that kind of behavior seems to me important. I believe the original agreement had some very deep flaws, but once it was signed, I think it was a mistake to walk away from it. 
we we should have then used various other pressures to address these other issues. So that was a strategic misstep by the Trump administration? I think so, in part because it ended up isolating us as well as the Iranians. We heard this week from Iran this threat that they may not comply. They have been, and the rest of the world stayed in the deal. What happens if this thing actually does fall apart? I think moving ahead like this for Iran just puts them deeper in a box because then it'll not only be the United States that has reimposed sanctions, it'll put the Europeans in a position where they have to do that as well. So you think the Iranians are bluffing? No, they may be making a mistake, which may be even worse. We spoke recently with Iran's top diplomat, Javad Zarif, and he basically said he thought President Trump was being manipulated by his advisors, particularly John Bolton, along with some U.S. allies. And he seemed to be saying we're on the path where an accident, a military confrontation of some sort, could happen. Is that where you see us headed? I think there's that risk, absolutely. I mean, if the Iranians make the mistake of launching an attack in the Persian Gulf on a more American warship, or if they uh, carry out an operation against American uh, uh, troops uh, in Iraq uh, or something like that, um, the administration probably won't have any alternative but to retaliate. And but do you think that, that there is that manipulation happening to create the conditions for that? I don't believe that the president is being manipulated, and I don't believe his advisors are trying to maneuver him into a position that provokes... Uh, an incident with the Iranians that could then be expanded. I don't, I don't believe that. It sounds like you're saying miscalculation, though, is still a possibility I think it's here. a very real risk right now, yes. You're a former Secretary of Defense, former CIA director. Do you still speak with foreign leaders? Um, sometimes. Not all that often, but sometimes. President Trump says that John Kerry should be prosecuted under the Logan Act because he still talks to foreign leaders, specifically Iran's foreign minister. What do you make of that? Well, to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever been prosecuted under the Logan Act. <laughs> and I think it's been in effect since World War I. So, so you're, you're laughing so I about think, this. I, yeah, I mean, this is not going to happen. And, and American politicians and former leaders talk to other leaders all the time. So these accusations from the president that it is because the former secretary of state is interfering, that it's keeping Iran from negotiating, you think the president's just wrong? I don't believe that. And there's nothing wrong with it, in your, your view. I think, I think it's a matter of judgment. And I think, I think trying to hold a negotiation, if you will, with a foreign leader when you're out of power is a mistake. I think that's a mistake in judgment. Uh, there's only one president at a time. And negotiations with other governments ought to be left to the administration, to the president. North Korea, another hot spot. Do you think the president's on the right track? Under his, uh, President Trump's three predecessors, all tried to negotiate with the North Koreans and all failed. I thought that uh, the president's uh, decision to reach out to Kim Jong-un and offer a personal meeting, sure there were risks, but I thought it was a bold stroke that might create an environment where there could actually be progress toward getting limitations on the, on the North Korean nuclear program. I believe that the North Koreans will never completely denuclearize. The uh, proposal was, in Hanoi. Was basic, yes, was basically the same strategy that he's followed with, with Trump's predecessors. You know, we'll do a little and you do some. You, we'll do a little and you do more. So you don't think and he's serious about diplomacy? I think, uh, Kim? I think he is, but I think he's got a different set of objectives. I like to say over the years of negotiations, the nuclear facility at, at uh, Yongbyon has been opened and closed so many times, it ought to have a revolving door. <laughs> so that's not a serious offer by North Korea when they put it on the They've table. They've done this Hawaii. before. So pr the president was right to walk away? I think he was. I think he was because uh, now I think they're unrealistic in believing that they can get complete denuclearization. So the question is, if the North won't give up all of its nuclear weapons, are other limitations worth pursuing? Mm -hmm. And what's the alternative to pursuing those other alternatives? Well, North Korea hasn't handed over its weapons inventory. They haven't dismantled their missiles. They haven't 
broken down any part of their nuclear program. So how long do you keep talking before you say this just isn't going to work? As long as there's no nuclear testing, uh, it's probably worth keeping the door open. But at some point, people have to realize that if you just drag this thing out, uh, it's not going to lead to anything. We'll be right back with some analysis from our panel. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We turn now to our panel for some analysis. Susan Glasser covers the presidency and foreign policy for The New Yorker, and David Nakamura covers the White House for The Washington Post. Good to have you here. Uh, it, it was interesting to have Bob Gates sort of take us around the world. All these hot spots seem to be bubbling up this week, a lot on the Trump administration's plate. David, from your reporting with the North Koreans and this round of testing, what is the you know, what are they looking for here? Is it a third summit? What are they trying to do? The North Korean strategy has long been, if they're not getting the kind of attention from the United States that they want, they act this way and they start to sort of press the boundaries. Now we're seeing since the breakdown of the talks in Hanoi without a deal, um, increasing signals that Kim Jong-un is frustrated. He wants Donald Trump to re-engage. How they re-engage is not clear. The U.S. side says they sent feelers uh, to Pyongyang and they're not hearing anything back. And which side sort of budges and says, okay, we're ready to renegotiate, reopen this, uh, is unclear. And I think what you're seeing now, both with uh, the tests uh, by the North um, that have not you know, gone so far as to force Trump to say that they're violating this ban on uh, ballistic missile testing that he's so trumpeted as an achievement. Uh, but not, not just that, but now there's a seizure of the United States of a North Korea uh, cargo ship um, suggesting that uh, the North is trying to get around the economic sanctions. Mm-hmm. This is leading to greater tensions, and how they sort of break through that to get back to the negotiating table is not clear, especially at a time when Trump is also engaged in this trade war with China, and he's trying to keep the Chinese uh, support on the sanctions uh, regime. And the U.N. said that 40 percent of the North Korean population is near starving right now. I mean, they're really getting squeezed um, by these sanctions. Does, does delivering food aid violate the maximum pressure campaign, Susan? Does the president have a way around this? Uh, well, I think he does. Uh, and the other thing is that President Trump has shown that he really won't be bound by uh, many of the constraints anyways that in the past he's not, uh, as you know, uh, uh, one of those people who in his negotiations insists on uh, consistency at the expense of all other virtues, right? And so right. Uh, in this situation, I, I agree with David that the North Koreans are really looking uh, to pressure the United States in some way back to the table. Kim Jong-un is essentially launching these missiles. He's given a deadline, interestingly, of the end of the year mm-hmm. uh, for there to be some sort of progress here. And, you know, what's striking is that President Trump, although uh, – he suffered what looks like an embarrassment, uh, the collapse of this summit, uh, his theory of the case that uh, the North Koreans would respond to his pressure differently than the three previous U.S. administrations. That hasn't paid off either. Trump has been pretty unwavering in his very, very public desire to go back to the table as well. So I think that, you know, once again, we're seeing it's much easier to uh, blow up deals than it is to make them, uh, despite Trump believing that he's a great deal maker. And David, while the president has said these short range missile tests don't violate his uh, sense of of trust with Kim Jong-un, that's got to make Japan and South Korea a little nervous. Absolutely. You just had the uh, prime minister of Japan here a few weeks ago. He's taken a really hard line on these talks uh, in contrast to what's happening with the president of South Korea. So there's a split among U.S. allies. Tokyo and Seoul do not see this the same way. It's certainly concerning for the Japanese that they're uh, relaunching these sort of shorter range missiles, projectiles, new weapons that Kim Jong-un talks about. And it's unclear, you know, what. but it also sends a signal that the North, North Korea is continuing to make progress on its overall weapon system. And this is something that as this thing 
things drags out. There's a sense that the North Koreans, of course, they want that into sanctions. There are, you know, major issues with the economy, and that's uh, troubling for Kim Jong Un in his long-term future. But I think uh, over time, there's the idea that North Korea likes these talks because they continue to drag this out in a way that gives them more time. Susan, uh, on Iran, that was another flashpoint this week. The Pentagon sent uh, anti-missile battery, B-52 bombers, an amphibious ship, combat helicopters, aircraft carrier. What is this buildup aimed at? Well, you know, look, you talk about maximum pressure. I think that is the goal right now of the administration. But again, on North Korea, on Iran, uh, we haven't talked about Venezuela yet. China, what you see, I think, across a broad number of fronts is that people are so eager to find a Trump doctrine in foreign policy. There is no Trump doctrine in foreign policy, right? And, it, you know, if you will lose yourself all day long trying to figure out why are they tough uh, and talking about human rights here, uh, but on the other hand, with uh, North Korea, talking about embracing a dictator. Uh, in, in Iran, we're looking at one year after the president blew up the Iran deal, walked away from this accord that was negotiated not only by the United States, but its key allies and partners. So you could say, well, we're just seeing the inevitable unraveling of that previous agreement. That's what's happening right now. Uh, but I think that it really connects back to the, the great uncertainty about what the Trump administration policy is yeah. in the Middle East more broadly, right? You have this situation in Syria where the Iranians are there on the side of the Syrian regime. Uh, you have the Russians there as well. Uh, interestingly, you could say that President Trump has a very hard line policy in many of these places. And the only question is whether he himself actually supports it. It's a great point, because I was going to say that, you know, Trump undercuts his aides so often. We've seen that from the start of the administration. Mm -hmm. They're speaking out of two sides of your mouth. And there was the idea that Trump is building the maximum pressure on Iran like he did with Pyongyang. And the goal being uh, that Trump himself would then get to the negotiating table with the Iranians. Mm -hmm. And well, Trump himself still, said, call me. He yeah, said, right, call me yeah, right after John Bolton was suggesting there was a new hard line in, in place. And so, you know, what I think is interesting also in the end of the Iran deal on the nuclear weapons, uh, you know, the allies have been cut out of the U.S. policy mm -hmm. and the U.S. approach. And Trump believes himself to be the great deal maker. Only I can fix this. Um, you've seen him do that with North Korea, now with uh, Iran potentially, and of course with China, where he got a lot of kudos for a harder line policy on Chinese economic practices, what a lot of uh, allies believe is predatory, but he's cut out the allies in sort of building the pressure on China and even negotiating. I thought it was interesting talking to Bob Gates that he said he stands by his assessment that Joe Biden has been wrong in foreign policy for 40 years. But then he pointed out the Democratic candidates, no one's really articulating their view of what America should be doing. So all the problems you're laying out may get handed off to another commander in chief in 2020. Where do we pick up? Well, look, I mean, first of all, you have President Trump to the extent there is a, a unifying theme. It often has been up until now a sort of uh, anything but Obama's foreign policy. And that that was usually a pretty sure way to predict the otherwise unpredictable. Right. So if President Trump saw a place and a, a way to undo something that Obama did, for example, the Iran nuclear deal uh, or to achieve something he felt Obama did not, for example, a breakthrough with North Korea, he would do it. It's very hard after two years, after four years mm -hmm. to make the argument that your foreign policy doctrine is just to do what the other guy didn't do. Democrats would face that problem as well. Uh, you know, there would be enormous. President Trump is obviously extremely unpopular with the Democratic base. So simply arguing that you would do differently than Trump may be enough for of a foreign policy argument. Generally speaking, American voters aren't looking for a consistent uh, uh, worldview and doctrine from their presidential candidates as much as they are focused, understandably, on the economy and what's happening here at home. But right. look, the bottom line is that it may suit President Trump to have Joe Biden as the nominee mm -hmm. and to be able to once again to say, well, at least I'm cleaning up the messes from Barack Obama. Biden would be like that. Well, we want to talk about uh, the challenge the U.S. faces from China with former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. That's up next. Memories make us laugh and cry and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. 
Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. We're now joined by Henry Paulson, Treasury Secretary for George W. Bush. He was the administration's point person on the 2008 financial crisis and also led previous U.S. trade talks with China. It's great to have you here in studio. Uh, You know China's leadership very well, both from your time as Treasury Secretary and building out uh, business for Goldman Sachs there for many, many years. How do you expect China to retaliate against the U.S. since these talks seem to have stalled? Well, Margaret, let me begin by saying happy Mother's Day and to to my mom, Mariana, and my wife, Wendy. Now, I'm not going to predict how China is going to respond. They've been very restrained to date. Uh, They clearly want a deal and need a deal, as does the United States. No one wins a trade war. So I'm expecting, you know, a a, a fairly uh, restrained response. You had uh, one of the president's top economic advisors, Larry Kudlow, on air today saying that the Chinese came to talks this week and then backslid on some of the things they'd previously agreed to. Why the miscalculation? Well, there's often miscalculations, right? People misunderstand China. They've got a different political system than ours, but they've got politics. They've got vested interests. But, you know, the bigger picture here is this is a deal that can be very good for the United States and very good for China. The Trump administration has been working very hard to do something which I think would make a big difference for American workers, for the American people, in terms of getting more balanced trade, in terms of protecting IPR, in terms of breaking down some big structural barriers to competition. And China's got plenty of problems themselves. They've got an inefficient financial system, inefficient state-owned enterprises, massive misallocations of capital. So their reformers know that if they're going to grow at an acceptable level, they need some structural changes. So this, I think, is a you know been a missed opportunity for both both countries. But I believe, and I think the overriding point here, the big picture is, if and when this deal is done, and I'm an optimist, I think it'll get done, the the underlying tensions are still going to be there because this is, the stakes are much bigger than a trade war. The, you know, the, the, the basic economic problem is still going to exist. You've put up huge warning signs around this. You said you fear an economic cold war, an economic iron wall. Yeah, I I talked about an economic iron curtain. And the reason I did is this, Margaret, that the, as I said, the stakes are much bigger than a a trade war. This is a battle between two countries to drive, to set the standards for the technologies of the future, the technologies which are going to bolster economic growth and competitiveness around the world. And so the fundamental issue is technology. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's where the battleground is. And technology has blurred the lines between national security and economic competitiveness. And so, you know, I think it's vitally important we protect our national security. But a growing and important part of trade is technology related. And so the real risk is that both countries through their actions will throw up or create an economic iron wall which means we'll be decoupling global supply chains, right? We'll be having two systems uh, with incompatible standards and, and rules. And so as I look at it, the defining strength of America is innovation. And we need to protect our technology, need to protect our innovation. Mm-hmm. But if we close ourselves off from other, you know, uh, uh, other innovative economies and entrepreneurs, we jeopardize our leadership position in the world that we're much less attractive as a destination for foreign investment. So you seem to be saying the moment is ripe for this deal. Yes. You're optimistic, but you don't like tariffs. Um, that's the president's main tool right. here. Is this going to damage the U.S. economy? Well, so you're darn right. I don't like tariffs. Why don't I like them? Because they're attacks on the American consumer. 
But I see an even more perverse effect with tariffs. Those who do us the great honor of investing in America, of doing business with our companies and suppliers, do so because we've always had predictable, reliable economic policies. Tariffs jeopardize that. But now we see a situation where Republicans and Democrats and many and many international companies are applauding for tariffs if they're used to to get concessions from China. Mm -hmm. And why is that? The reason is, is because we're in a tough spot in negotiations. Our our tariffs are either non-existent or very low. So how do you put pressure on other countries to act? How do you put pressure on China? We don't have very many good tools. So that's why they they, they prefer tariffs. Is it going to hurt us economically? Yeah, but but I would, I'll say this, I would prefer... I, I would I would prefer the tactic of working with our allies to put pressure. But I got to admit, that's an imperfect tool, right? Because our allies aren't very tough when it comes to negotiating with China. But will it hurt us? I tell you, if this persists too long, it will. OK, there will be a cost to it. We're, 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 we're trying to accomplish something that's very important in terms of opening up the Chinese economy. Mm-hmm. But there is a cost. And as strong as our economy is right now, and it is yeah. very, very strong, as strong as it is, I'll tell you if... Mr. Secretary, we have to leave it there. I'm okay. so sorry. We're running up against a hard break. Thank you all for watching. To all the moms, including my own mother, my mother-in-law, happy Mother's Day. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy of California and Colorado Democratic Senator and 2020 presidential hopeful Michael Bennett. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates and former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson also joined us. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow the show and CBS News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.